Hi, I'm Donna Barber, author of Bread for the Resistance, 40 Devotions for Justice People. And I'd like to send congratulations to IVP for celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. I'm David De Silva, author of Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity, an introduction to the New Testament and sacramental life. And I'd like to say congratulations to IVP for celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. I'm Myla Kim. And I'm Ed Gilbreth. In every episode, you'll hear from authors of color about the making of their books, as well as the challenges they had to overcome along the way. It's Myla Kim here, and I am excited to share with you about a special conversation you are about to hear. You know, many publishers, both in Christian and secular book publishing, are trying to do more to diversify their author list, and it's great to see this kind of energy in the industry. But did you know that InterVarsity Press has been featuring authors of color for decades? Today on the show, we get to hear from two amazing individuals who both have a long history with InterVarsity Press and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Jeanette Yep and Greg Howe. They were both part of the team of Asian American leaders who wrote the book Following Jesus Without Dishonoring Your Parents, published in 1998. And even though this book came out more than 20 years ago, it's still having an impact and helping Asian Americans even today with how to balance various parts of their identity as followers of Jesus and as Christians with distinct God-given ethnic identities. Jeanette is currently the pastor of Missional Partnerships and Multicultural Ministry of Grace Chapel in Lexington, Massachusetts, and Greg is the Executive Vice President for Communications and Mobilization of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. This episode is our first in a series of three bonus conversations in conjunction with InterVarsity Press's 75th anniversary, which we are celebrating all throughout the year. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeanette Yep and Greg Howe. We are excited to welcome Jeanette Yep and Greg Howe to the Every Voice Now podcast today. So thank you guys both for being with us for this episode. Thanks for having us. Grateful to be here. We have two giants on this podcast who is an honor to just be able to host. Um, And so I'm excited for this conversation just to hear a little bit about your story, but also the book that we're going to be talking about. Um, One of my favorite questions that we get to on this podcast, and I love that we get to it early, is asking you guys to share about your ethnic identity journey. And so can you share a little bit about your ethnic background? Yeah, my grandparents, uh, all four of them, are immigrants from the Xiamen region of China, and they all immigrated to the Philippines, uh, where my parents were born. And I think part of my ethnic identity journey is that my parents, because they were ethnic Chinese growing up in the Philippines, which has been colonized multiple times, um, my parents were a unique blessing in that they were able to talk about differences of culture with me as a child. Um, They immigrated here to the United States where I was born, Um, always aware that I was Chinese, always aware uh, we had um, some cultural overlay with the Philippines. 
and always able to distinguish how was my Chinese identity different than my American identity because my parents talked about that a lot. And then we joined a Mandarin speaking church. So then they were saying, okay, here's how we're different from um, this Mandarin speaking church based on who we are. Some of it's from the Philippines um, immigration experience. Some of that's from where we are in China. So I felt like I always had vocabulary to talk about it. But one of the times that it really hit me was when I started taking Spanish in school. And all of a sudden I found words in the Spanish uh, vocab section that I was like, wait, I thought that was Chinese because my parents would use words like pero or would greet people with comosta. And I just had never thought about it, but I realized suddenly there were all of these Spanish loan words via Tagalog into my Chinese. And so all of a sudden when that became clear, I was like, oh, 400 years or 500 years of colonialization, how that affected the speech that we had in my family. So I always thought the Chinese word for garbage can was basura <laughs> until wow. I got to about junior high and wow. realized, oh, this is what immigration does. And then probably the next big step of ethnic identity um, really was meeting Jeanette, who um, brought it to a different level and began to say, well, this is how it's actually impacting the way that you're behaving interpersonally with people. And this is the way that God might be equipping you with your ethnic identity um, to be a gift as you um, engage in his mission. And so I think I went from awareness to suddenly actually thinking, what does this look like redemptively? As well as I think really through Jeanette's tutelage, um, what are the broken places in my ethnic identity that I need to engage with, confess, uh, repudiate, or repent of? And so being on the podcast with Jeanette um, on this kind of a topic feels very redemptive and not full circle because there's a lot more to go, but I would count on her as one of the people who really taught me to think that way. Jeanette, let's hear from you about your ethnic identity journey. Yeah, well, Greg is very gracious, but um, my family is more the long-term uh, first kind of generations of um, Chinese-American immigrants to this country. So um, we're kind of the old-time Chinese from Guangdong province, the southern part of China, although my grandfather wasn't of the gold rush era, but it was of that generation of folk of you know, working class folk who were facing famine and hardship in China. So when Westerners and others said, come to America, they called it the gold mountain. Um, they were saying, yeah, I'll go to the gold mountain and I'll go make my money. They came as sojourners, make my money, and they go back to China and retire as wealthy people. My grandpa was part of that. It was the end of the Qing dynasty. Um, and he came to Boston. He was one of the first settlers, Chinese settlers in Boston, Chinatown. He came in 1901. And, uh, uh, somehow ended up first in Portland, Maine, which is not, even to this day, not a high point in the Asian American uh, <laughs> pantheon of places to go. And then I think he realized, oh gosh, there's not many people like me. So then he moved further south back into Boston. So, uh, so we're from that kind of working class family background. He had a hand laundry on uh, the backside of Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill is the Tony section of Boston where the Boston Brahmins live. And my dad came when he was 10 years old during the American depression to help my grandfather run the hand laundry because my dad did that laundry for with my grandpa. He only finished secondary school at night. So my siblings and I are the first generation to get university education. So, you know, really this is us, you know, we're really the early Chinatown family. And I think, Growing up in, in Boston in those days, there just were very few Asians, just very few. I mean, I have a, 
a very strong memory of getting in the family car, going down to Cape Cod or something like that. And we would go buy another car of Asians. And my mother would say to us in Chinese, wave. And we, the kids in the backseat, we would go like this. And then we'd say, why are we waving? And my mother would say, you don't know if they're your relative or not. And then, you know, even as a little kid, I thought, well, if they're our relative, we would know. But anyway, we would wave because there were just so few Asians. So regardless of what kind of Asian you were, if there were some friendly yeps in the backseat waving at you as you went by, it's really hard to understand now. But in our high school of over 2,000 students, I think there were three of us who were Asian-American. And if you know Boston demographics now, that the whole community has changed and it's, you know, it's wildly largely Asian or at least a large minority but in my day it was Italian and Irish Catholic and there were three of us so if my brother and I were sick you know it was one-third or two-thirds of the Asian population totally wiped out from Braintree High School that day. Um, it's a really different time and place. Um, you always felt different, you always just felt different because there was nobody to identify with. Only people that were like me were my relatives and people in church. Thank you guys for sharing. I mean, I love the commonalities between how you guys shared, you know, even though ethnic identity formation is so personal and individual, you started with your families and the country that they're from and the language that you guys speak. And I I think it's so interesting how generational ethnic identity formation is. And it makes me wonder when we, I'm thinking of the third or fourth gen of you know, Hmong Americans, when they don't speak the language anymore, when their parents are from America, what does it look like for them to have these gold nugget moments of, oh, this is who I am because of these things, right? For now, it's where our parents immigrated from and the language that we spoke in the homes. What will it look like for the upcoming generations? And so I just love how personal this identity formation journey is, but also how communal it can be as well. So thank you guys for sharing that. Well, I know that you guys probably both know this is an episode of our honoring the IVP 75th anniversary. And so a number of the questions we're going to talk about today, it's going to lean into the past and kind of help our listeners appreciate the history and the heritage of IVP. And that's probably a nice way of saying I'm old. you guys have come long before. Go ahead. <laughs> you guys have, you know, the history and the heritage. Um, and so I know you guys both are probably familiar with not only the Westmont headquarters of IVP, but also the previous location in Downers Grove. And so can you share a little bit um, about your memories of the Downers Grove office? Are there any stories or moments that you remember from that era? You mean before it became a brewery? <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) One of my former offices is now the place where they store hops. So, um, (laughs) but when I started, they very kindly, I was the local InterVarsity staff person. My housemate, Linda, was involved with InterVarsity Press. So they very kindly gave me a corner. And I literally had a corner of the downstairs uh, part of the uh, Downers Grove office. I had to bring my own furniture. I had an old door top and a, you know two file drawers, you know, very studenty kind of thing that I had brought with me from my move from Cambridge, and that was my little space. But they were very kind to me, you know, gave me a phone, allowed me to use the Xerox machine, you know, in, in early days when those early uh, desktop computers. I think I got in on that. Was invited to office meetings, so uh, they very graciously uh, cared for me. And then eventually, I think they made a commitment to 
to make sure that a, a local staff person could always office inside InterVarsity Press, uh, in part to keep connections mm -hmm. with what the campus was doing. And I think in part out of sadness for us who were kind of working from home in a day when it wasn't very cool to work from home. Uh, but I was always <laughs> grateful for that. I do recall getting a tour of the brewery recently, probably five, six years ago. And I walked around the building and then I felt this bump on the floor. And I thought, oh, I remember this. It was just a, a floor memory. It was just a little, it's That's like crazy so how funny. you stuff, but there was a little... A it's rise still there. in the building where there might have been a safe or something like that, but and I felt it. I said, "Oh!" and it just triggered all this. I said, um, "Oh wow!" So <laughs> it's funny how places different memories, you know. Yeah, that's cool. What about you, Greg? You you seem like oh, you might have a couple for stories. Those who have never seen pictures. It's it was an old uh, two story um, car dealership, and so picture a pretty narrow two story building. And I remember the first time I went to IVP, this is probably in the mid 80s. And there's a little bookstore like we have now in the, the front lobby area, but far fewer books. We hadn't published as many as we do now. But I remember um, IVP uh, wants to invest in the right thing. So we invest in our authors, we invest in the editorial process. We don't invest in the environment, at least in those years. So I remember um, duct tape being used to hold the carpet together as you walk from the lobby into the general service area. It matched, it matched <laughs> the rug that was brown duct tape. But no! right, rather, than, um, <laughs> rather than change the carpet, we'll just duct tape it together. Because it used to be an old car dealership, there were two things I loved about it. And the old um, elevator that they used to move the cars from the second floor to the first floor was still there. So it's an enormous car with elevator made out of iron. And every now and then randomly, even though nobody had used it in years, as far as I know, it would shake and you hear a thug, right? And that's not bad during the day because you're all busy. But if you had to work late at night, you'd be by yourself in the office in the dark. And all of a sudden you'd hear these chains and metal thing rattle. And that's sort of bad, except that the old IVP office was right next door to a cemetery. So if you have a slightly oh, no. overactive imagination, no. you're in the dark oh, working yes. your office in a corner, you hear and then a chain rattle and you think I'm right next door to a, a very old uh, cemetery. And so that was a little bit of what it was like to work there. And my second favorite thing about that back room that I never took advantage of was there was an old blue reclining chair. And that was the place where if you weren't feeling well, you needed a little bit of a break, you could go and just go to the chair. There's a little blankie and just rest a little bit. And so when we built the new office, um, the architects were really wise. They interviewed a lot of people at the press building and said, what do you love about this building? And, you know, what will you miss? And people were like, nothing. <laughs> we're glad to move. But several people said, I really miss that blue. Oh, I'm going to miss that blue chair. It was convenient to have a place to get out of the office, rest a little bit. And so as they designed the current office, right, which they, they it's, it's beautiful. They built a little kind of monastic uh, cloister in the middle to get sunlight because people said they wanted light in the, um, in the middle of the building. But the architect kept thinking about that blue chair. And so he took what should have been a cleaning closet between the two bathrooms and put a reclining chair in there. And so that became the blue chair room. If you go to IVP now, I invite you, um, it, it, the chair is no longer blue. It's a much nicer chair than it was before. But it, it's the massage chair now. It is. Honest. Massage Honest. chair, I think. <laughs> um, but I love the human scale of when we design a place, let's make it sure it serves people. Let's make sure that um, 
they're places of retreat so that we can be attentive to ourselves, our bodies, and take care of ourselves in the midst of what would otherwise could just feel like a corporate environment. And so that's one of my favorite stories about the IVP. That's really cool. Wow. There's a lot about the old building I never knew. So love hearing those parts of IVP history. Um, And there's another part of IVP history that we're going to talk about today, which is the book that you guys were both on the writing team of, Following Jesus Without Dishonoring Your Parents, which was published in 1998. Um, And so I won't share with you guys how old I was in 1998, <laughs> but Jeanette, could you share with us what the genesis of um, this book was? What was happening in the late 1990s in the context of your work on college campuses that made you feel like this was a needed project? That's a lot of history um, ago, so I'll try to recall, but uh, obviously there was a switch in the student demographics when there was an immigration law that was passed. I think it was in the 60s, Greg. You probably 65. 65. And then those immigrants' kids, Greg included, are the ones that came into the university. And they started to flood the university. So in my day, when I was a student involved in varsity here in Massachusetts, my staff worker would say to me, Jeanette, if you come to this conference, all New England conference, I can introduce you to two other Chinese Americans. And I said, two? He said, yes, we can find you two other Chinese-American Christians for you to meet, Mar- Marty from Harvard and Liz from Yale. I said, oh, and that was an incentive for me because there were so few of us on campus. So anyway, so I, you know, I joined IV in the late 70s, and I, I watched that demographic change. Uh, at first, I think our supervisors couldn't figure out what to do with an Asian-American category. They had an understanding of international students. And so my, my well-meaning first boss said, well, you're interested in Asian peoples. Why don't you go to the local Chinese Bible study? And I was in Cambridge at that point here in Massachusetts. And I went to a Chinese Bible study, and there were Mandarin speaking, a small group of Cantonese speaking, and I thought, these are not my people. <laughs> you know, I'm not a Chinese nat- native speaker. You know, they were uh, international students from Taiwan, Hong Kong at that point. And I said, but I want to find my tribe, which were the English speaking kind of second generation and beyond types. And um, they started coming to campus really in the 90s. And um, as we were working on campus, we saw that demographic shift. And um, yeah, so so the book really was in response to seeing the changing demographics of campus and then realizing as we try to minister to the whole campus, um, we we needed to make that kind of segmentation or, you know, make some distinction that way and, and, and start doing that work. And, you know, lots of stories, but, you know, some of the first Asian-American things was done through the Chicagoland um, InterVarsity uh, Ministry and things. And, and so we, we started exploring some of that. And I think it was Cindy Bunch um, who said, why don't you guys get together and write a book? And so she's the one who organized us and, you know, uh, and we thought through what kinds of people and what people groups. And then we sat together, you know, figured out who would write and then we figured out what we would write. And then uh, we met in a conference room at IVP in Westmont and kind of banged out the details. That's awesome. Anything you'd like to add, Greg? Yeah. Um, you know, Cindy also, I think, initiated with Tom Lin, university's current president, to do a Bible study book called um, Losing Face and Finding Grace. And... Um, so that may have been the first targeted Asian American publication that came out of IVP. There were other Asian American authors before that, folk like Ada Lum and 
other folk, but I think it was the first one targeting that demographic group. And there was such deep resonance of finally a resource that speaks to us. And as the numbers of Asian Americans increased on campus and in intervarsity, I think part of what we realized was um, the, the current discipleship books were fantastic, but they could not and did not address some of the questions that Asian Americans were raising in their discipleship. Um, well, how do I engage with my parents? How do I understand race issues from an Asian American context, not assuming that it's a black-white binary? Um, how do I understand my identity and the gifts that we bring? And so I think it was out of that deep sense of, these were the questions we were having to answer on campus with students. These are the questions staff were wrestling with. And they were questions that churches were not wrestling with because they were assuming a particular culture. So students who were bicultural were really adrift. And so I'm so grateful that IVP thought, I don't know how many of this will sell, but there's a, a need that it will meet. And so let's take a risk and do it. There was an overlap too with the Urbana Missions Conference because somebody, it might've been Paula Harrison, um, started a ethnic specific little workshops uh, as part of Urbana. And, and I remember leading early on a workshop called Missions and the Asian American. And it was an attempt to say your ethnic identity makes a difference. God didn't make a mistake in making you who you are. And in fact, you can leverage your kind of cultural understandings and navigating American life and your home culture. You can use that for mission. And so um, that kind of brought out other people and you know started gathering some of the early folk in, in Asian American ministry and all the rest. So there was, you know, all kinds of overlap between the student work and the coming of this book. That's great to hear the history behind all of this. Even today, like it's still a book that people look to as a resource. And so, I mean, Holy Spirit was there when you guys had this gut feeling of, I think there's something that we need to produce. Um, and I, I want to ask you guys about the process of writing this book, because I heard that it was written in this manner that reflected its own Asian American heritage. And so can each of you guys share about that experience? I think part of what made it feel like a distinctly Asian American writing experience was we told a lot of stories. Um, before coming up with chapter titles or subjects, before coming up with a general approach, I remember just sitting in a conference room telling stories, um, our own stories, but also stories of students that we knew. Um, stories of students who had struggled and not made it out with their faith intact, stories of um, students in pain. It was an all East Asian writing team at the time, that's who we had access to. The Korean experience was different than the Japanese experience was different than the Chinese experience. And even between Jeanette and I representing two different streams of the Chinese immigrant experience, and so we were disaggregating before it was popular at one level. Um, but it was important to have that sense of nuance because if we were going to try to speak together, it was important to be able to go, oh, because I heard that story from Peter Cha, 1.5 generation Korean American, I need to nuance what I'm going to say in this way so that it's more fully inclusive of what they're going to do. So an enormous amount of storytelling. I remember um, uh, in the middle of the writing, one of the writing, the early meetings, uh, one of our colleagues hit a crisis with his parents um, in calling and his, his, we had known his parents were really opposed to him coming on staff and he lived nearby. And so I remember we called and we said, do you need us to come get you? And then we took time to pray with him. Uh, we took time to um, 
be a, slightly aggrieved at a letter a senior university person wrote trying to intervene in the situation, which was largely to the parents going, you know the point of being a parent is that you're supposed to let your children go and be free. And, and we just thought, you are so not Asian <clears throat> in writing this. And so I thought it was interesting, even in the midst of trying to define what this book would be, we were also engaged in what was, um, for that person, a very deeply felt personal crisis around the very themes of the book. And so choosing to intervene, to pray, to call, um, to be present, and to look at the systems that were contributing to some of that felt like a very distinct Asian American moment. I'm so much more superficial than Greg is. I remember um, that we essentially ate our advance. So there were all of us writing <laughs> together and we were given an advance to work on you know, gathering and all that stuff. And we made sure that we ate really well. So there was a lot of fun eating, a lot of fun sharing, and, um, you know, a lot of storytelling, as you're saying. I would say not self-promoting. So when we kind of came up with the outlines of the chapters, it was a lot of, how about you write that chapter, as opposed to saying, I'll write that chapter. It was kind of like, I, you know, I really think you should. And you really think I should? Yeah, I think you're really the best one for that. And a little more of that as opposed to, uh, you know I'm the best at this, don't you? So I'm going to take it on. Um, so it was a lot of that working together, calling out one another's gifts, and then harmonizing the work as we did, as we worked on it. And again, Cindy, because she had spent some time living in Japan, she had a, just a different sensitivity to the Asian experience, even as a, a non-Asian person. And as she guided us, it was really helpful to have her, um, you know, uh, have an alertness to Asian cultures as, as we were living it out. Thank you guys for sharing that. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll hear more from our guests about the unique impact of this historic IVP book. So stay tuned and thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast. I'm Nancy Wong Yim, co-editor of Power Women, Stories of Motherhood, Faith, and the Academy, and the host of IVP's podcast, The Disruptors. And I'd like to say congratulations to IVP for celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. Ever wonder how God is specifically inviting you into a deeper walk with Him? Join a diverse group of students and mission-minded hearts in Indianapolis this December, the 28th through the 31st, for the Urbana Student Missions Conference. Since 1946, Urbana has been a space for whole life, whole world discipleship. A place to discover how God is calling you to use your gifts and passions in His global mission. You'll encounter stories of people who have answered their call to the Great Commission and have served it around the world. You'll engage in dynamic, joyful, multicultural worship unlike any other worship experience you've had. And you'll enter a sacred space to interact with missions organizations and experts to discern where your gifts and experiences fit in God's global work. It's time to rise up. Learn about conference discounts by signing up for the Urbana Insider Community at urbana.org and register now. That's U-R-B-A-N-A dot org. Join us at Urbana 22 to discover, discern, and decide how to pair your passions with God's purpose. 
Hello, this is Ed Gilbreth, author of Reconciliation Blues and Birmingham Revolution, and I would like to say a big congratulations to IVP on this special occasion of 75 years. Happy anniversary! It has been an honor and a blessing for me to be counted as part of the IVP family. You're listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, and I'm Myla Kim. Today, we've been talking with Jeanette Yep and Greg Howe, members of the writing team of the IVP book, Following Jesus Without Dishonoring Your Parents. Keep listening to find out how you can get a special 40% discount on this book at ivypress.com. But first, let's find out a little bit more about the heritage and the history of this notable book. So I'd love to start by talking about the title, right? This is truly a unique title. It encompasses the book's essence. And so can you recall who came up with this title and what was the process of it? One of the folks who did a lot of background things that we continue to call upon was an East Asian Studies graduate student at Harvard named Marty Chu. And she did a little chart that compared the scriptures with Confucian Analects. So Greg mentioned earlier that there were no Southeast Asians in the book. Well, we kind of narrowed our scope to folk from East Asian traditions because there was the Confucian background cultures because we knew the target of Asia was so large. Um, so we wanted to aim at that Confucian background cultures. And so Marty came up with a little chart that would have a Confucian analect, and then she would have a scripture kind of to compare. So you could contrast your way through um, what was kind of formative in our Asian cultural backgrounds with what the scriptures had to say, you know, about honoring parents, sons, daughters, you know, family members and all that sort of stuff. So that had something to do, I think, with um, this whole idea about honoring parents and not dishonoring them. It it, it came from that uh, a bit from from her handout that she gave us. I think the other thing is uh, the target really was that first generation of children born to that post-65 immigrant group. And um, so it, it, it's the generation that creates the model minority story, which has been weaponized. But as I keep pointing out, it was weaponized against Black and Latinos, but it accurately describes many of our experiences. Like, I'm the model minority in every possible way. And in that first generation, the issue was trying to understand how do I engage my parents' expectations and our our inability to communicate, right? So that's the era that the Joy Luck Club becomes famous for trying to grapple with those issues. And I think it's interesting. The issue we were helping them wrestle with really was how do you manage your parents and the home culture of your parents? Later generations of Asian Americans are writing very different books. So Kathy Kong is not asking, you know, following Jesus without dishonoring parents. It's raise your voice. Um, And it's an assertion of, I know I'm here and I know I belong. And write another Asian American book that will be coming out that's the descendant of this book is learning our names. And so it's acknowledging that, but also inviting people learn our names, be attentive to who we are. And I think you see the development of Asian American self-confidence and identity, even in the titles that are being chosen and the folk side that they're bringing to it. And so this first one, it really was, let's figure out how we're going to engage with um, mom and dad. And the other books are now turning a little bit more outward to culture, we're here, engage with us. That's cool to think about them side by side and even the trajectory of what these titles mean and in in the era that they were published. And I mean, Greg, you wrote, you, you write a section called Honorable Disobedience. And I thought that was just interesting because I think we tend to associate 
dishonor and disobedience as the same thing. And you kind of nuance that a little bit using scripture, right? Naomi and Ruth and all of those instances. And so I think that was just really helpful to see that nuance and to know that you can still honor your parents and feel like I can be obedient to the thing that I feel like God is calling me to. I really attribute that to Jeanette, honestly. So Jeanette was my staff worker and um, I tell the story in Following Jesus. My parents were really opposed. And the way I describe it now is good Christians who loved me so much that they did not want to trust my financial future to the church if I was going to do fundraising. And um, and it was fascinating as a case study. All my Asian friends kept saying, you know, Greg, honor your mother and father. It's in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's reiterated. It ha- it's come in. And then they would tell stories, right, of missionaries who had waited until their parents' deathbed decades later before they would go. And then mission... Thousands of people come to faith because God was blessing that obedience. And none of my white friends quote, would quote that passage. They were all like, you know, Jesus came up to me and said, come follow me. And the man said, let me bury my father first. And Jesus let, let the dead bury their own dead. Anybody who loves it. And I, I didn't know what to do with these two passages. Because one is follow Jesus at all costs over your parents. And the other one is obey your parents as a way of following Jesus. And in my own journey, it was... Um, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to go on staff, but my parents were opposed. And it was Jeanette who asked the really crucial question. um, What's God calling you to do right now? If he's calling you to come on staff right now, then obey him. But if he hasn't given you a time thing, then you have to figure out how to also honor your parents in the midst of that. And it just opened the door for me wide enough to go, okay, here's how you live in tension between these two passages of scripture. You're not free to ignore one over the other, but you have to hold them in creative tension together doing your best to live them out. And it was really, I think, Jeanette's advice at that moment that gave me a way forward that allowed me to go ahead without being bitter with my parents uh, or feeling oppressed by them because I was my choice was to go to law school then. I was doing it to honor Jesus, but also not just to completely um, concede to what my parents wanted because it would have been emotionally easier. There was still a demand of it. You must follow Jesus on that. And I think it's Jeanette's wisdom in holding those passages together holding various identities together, wanting the whole of scripture to inform Asian American ministry and university and the ways that we did it, that I think actually helped make this book possible because it would have been so easy to write a book that tipped either to one side or the other. Abandon your Asian heritage, choose the Western way of freedom. And you saw a lot of that in that period. Um, The heroes were the people who threw off their bounds, who adopted the Western story of, I'm gonna leave this provincial life and find my destiny. And there are other people who then went the essentialist, like, oh, all Asians must just hew to the parents. And that was more made the ethnic church story. And I think it was Jeanette's vision of like, actually, there's a Jesus-shaped story that's going to hold together both sides of your identity. And you're going to have to redeem it. You're going to have to repent from some of it. But ultimately, it's going to be um, a beautiful thing that you use as a kingdom thing. And that really, I think, permeated the way that we approached the book. So we were really cautious, like, are we just fighting Asian churches and the conservatism there? Or are we just conceding to a cultural idolatry and not taking Jesus seriously? That's really Jeanette's model for all of us on that book. I have to say first that Greg is overly generous in his memory. I think what I recall very strongly was just hearing people's stories and then hearing students tell us that things were hard because they sensed God calling them one place or another and that mom and dad were so concerned about their security and well-being that they wanted them to make sure that, you know, um, they could pay for their expenses and provide for themselves. They didn't want them to suffer like they had suffered before. And so that, that was really the big um, 
paradigm, I think, that got us together is that we were hearing these stories all around the country. And um, we wanted to help students navigate what that meant to love their parents in the midst of this, but also to figure out how to honor them. But Greg is being overly generous, but um, you know, God has been very good to this whole generation. I think of leaders, you know, Helen, Greg, Tom Lynn, all those guys, it's, God has been very good to that group of folk. And, and I, it's wonderful to see the impact that they are having in the church overall and in intervarsity in particular. So this book has sold more than 17,000 copies over nearly 25 years that it's been in print. Um, And so I'm curious, Jeanette, can you give us a sense of what does that mean to you to hear that so many people have sought out and purchased this book? I don't know if that's good or not, this number, but it sounds like it is. And it is amazing that, you know, I still get sent copies periodically and there's a little note and it says that this is the blank edition and, and, you know, this number of um, copies have been sold. And it's very humbling to think that a book has had this long shelf life. And I think it just says that um, these are tensions folk feel. What I've heard uh, Myla, is that folk overseas have used it. So I have friends who work with YWAM Thailand, and they pull this out because this is the tension they're feeling as some of their first generation uh, or formerly Buddhist staff are interacting with their parents. And, you know, they have a similar paradigm where they have to do some amount of fundraising and, you know, bring shame to their parents. And what are you doing doing fundraising? And, you know, you've also brought shame to our family by no longer being Buddhist. Uh, so this book is one of their go-to resources that they use to help their people navigate this tension. So I think it's this kind of a first-generation coming to faith, maybe, as well as first-generation uh, immigrant experience commonality. Maybe that's why it continues to sell. It's very humbling because it's really, it's the stories of our students. It's, I, I think that's the best way to put it. The students that are entrusted to us, um, the pain and some of their um, struggles and allowed us to come alongside them and learn from them. It's a great privilege. I want to honor you guys for writing this book, for being obedient. As, as somebody who represents the next generation of Asian Americans trying to figure it out, it's so comforting to know we don't have to figure out and start from scratch. Like there is a generation of giants who've gone before, who've asked the hard questions. Even as I read this book, I think of the stories and I know a friend who I'm like, I need to give them this book because this is exactly what they're going through, or this is exactly the conversations they're having. And so just really want to honor you guys, even though it's been 20 plus years, it's still relevant. It transcends time. Truth is still so important for the next generation as well. It sounds self-serving because IVP sponsors the podcast, but I still am um, flabbergasted that um, in the last century, right, um, in 1997 or six, when we started working on this, IVP thought Asian Americans are not a big part of the conversation. They're not a big market, right? They're not even an identifiable market outside of campus ministry right now, but this is worth doing. Um, And it's one of multiple books around um, ethnic identity and ethnic representation that long before it became trendy, like in the last 10 years or five years, um, IVP said, we'll keep this book in print for 20 plus years when I think any other publisher would have said, it's had a great six months, (laughs) we're done now. And and I, I think it, it has been incredibly moving to have students um, or even adults reach out and say, actually, I read that book when I was in my 20s and it guided me through difficult things, whether it was I'm in an interracial marriage and my parents don't know how to manage that, or I'm single and it gave me words to describe to my parents what it meant, or this was the introduction for me of 
how Asian Americans should engage in justice and racial justice issues because nobody else had talked about it. We weren't even part of that conversation. And your book talked about it in 1998. Thank you for helping me understand even back then. So I think it's that that's really humbling. Why was it important for Asian American voices to be represented in this way in the marketplace at that time? Like, what were your collective words bringing to the church that nobody else was during this time? One thing I've noticed being outside of the kind of the intervarsity bubble uh, for almost 20 years now um, is that intervarsity has maintained a, a commitment uh, to issues of multi ethnicity, uh, racial justice, all these kinds of things um, from the start. Uh, always, not always wonderfully and smartly done, but um, maintain that commitment through time. And what I've noticed in other parts of the Christian or the evangelical world is the trendiness of certain topics that come and go. The money funding will flow in for this thing and then it goes away. But InterVarsity has kept it slow and steady. And I think the Lord has honored that. So I saw that in publishing and the kinds of books and titles that the press does. And I've seen that in the student ministry. It's been slow and steady. Uh, it keeps going even when it's no longer popular to sponsor or to give funds to. There's something about the call of God in this space that the fellowship has been faithful in. And I, I think, you know, it's something to be commended for and I'm grateful for. I also hope it opened doors. So, um, this book did well enough that it made it possible for IVP to go, you know, we should do this for the Latinx community as well. And so Being Latino in Christ by Orlando Crespo was maybe 10 years later. Hermanas just came out three or four years ago. But um, um, no other publisher I know of is like, you know, let's find the voice of that community and honor that community not as an example of this is how it should interact with a larger white evangelical community, which is the popular thing to do right now, right? Everybody's either engaging with or disaffiliating from a largely black-white conversation. But IPP has said there are people um, who are wrestling with deep discipleship issues and their culture and what that means in light of scripture, which is what I think has always been IVP's sweet spot. And we're not going to buy into just the binary white-black narrative. We're going to make sure we hear these other voices. and. I think what's remarkable is um, it's difficult for those voices to get a platform and to have right the ability to go, I can promise you 10,000 sales the first day. Um, it's been 20 years. We've managed to get close to 20-ish thousand. But um, there was a need, a group that needed to hear the gospel in a compelling way. And so I hope it's open doors like that. I hope it's open doors for some um, of the African-American authors who are not writing to a primarily white audience, but are saying, I would like to address the black community. And I don't think most evangelical publishers know how to reach that audience or know what to do with it. But um, I think this book helped open the door say, but it's important to do and we should try. The good news is those doors are continuing to open. This August, we're going to be releasing Learning Our Names, which is similarly written by an Asian American staff team. And so, Greg, you know these authors. What are your hopes for what this book could be that might be similar or different from Following Jesus Without Dishonoring Your Parents? I hope that they will initiate new conversations that this generation of Asian Americans 
are actually wrestling with. That as much as I'm grateful for 20 years of following Jesus without dishonoring your parents, the conversation has moved, the culture has moved, Asian America is different. And I know the writing team um, isn't all East Asian, and that's a blessing to us, right? There's South Asian and Southeast Asian, and so the diversity of voices is bigger and the questions are um, different. So I'm so excited that they're taking um, the same posture, what is God saying and doing in our community? And how do we equip the next generation seriously? And I suspect um, there are going to be um, some of those um, essential classic questions that will continue to resonate, um, that people be able to say, oh, there's a through line of um, the Asian American experience that we can see here. So I'm so excited to see how they're addressing what Asian America and Asian Americans are engaging with um, in this generation. Absolutely. Well, I'm sad to say we've come to the end of our time together. But before we go, I want to give you guys a few moments to share with our listeners any special projects you have going on right now or even where people can best reach you. Special projects. I'm working on an in email inbox that is a daunting. <laughs> 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 that is so, a large project. <laughs> that is a large project. Uh, getting down to zero would be after the Lord takes me home. But yeah, I'm I'm honored to be part of this conversation today. You can write me at um, jyep at grace.org. That that works. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter as well. I'm awesome. intermittent. I'm intermittent. <laughs> but if I get you, I will respond. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll link it in the show notes so people can find you. What about you, Greg? Um, I'm um, late in turning in a life guide Bible study guide on the church because I realized we there was no one Bible study guide for the church. And I hope what I'm bringing to it is anchoring the story of the church, um, not in Acts, but in actually Genesis 12, which gets us the multi-ethnic perspective of the church exists because of this promise that God made and concluded in Revelation. And I, I think it's partially as a person of color, it matters to me that the story of the church um, is anchored in this larger multi-ethnic um, reconciliation that God intends. So that's what I should be working on um, because I fear my editor may be listening to this. I'm, I'm also on Twitter at um, Greg Howe and um, people can always contact me through InterVarsity. Awesome. Well, thank you guys both. It's been so good to have you on this show and just to hear all the history and the background behind um, following Jesus without dishonoring your parents. And so we wanted to share with our listeners that you can find Following Jesus Without Dishonoring Your Parents at everyvoicenow.com. And if you use the code EVN40, you can get 40% off and free U.S. shipping. So visit our site to get a great deal on this historic and unique book. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast brought to you by IVP. Our producer is Helen Lee, and our sound engineer is Jonathan Clausen. If you are enjoying our show, please share about it with your friends. We'd be grateful for your reviews and recommendations on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you directly anytime. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Every Voice Now, or you can email us with your comments, questions, or suggestions at evn at ivpress.com. And join us next time for another inspiring episode of Every Voice Now. Every Voice Now.